Amen. Thank you very much. It's good to see you here this morning. And we're going to, uh, just a moment, commence our time together. It looks like the children are heading out, so I just uh, remark if uh, you uh, know you should go, you uh, young people that are heading to the children's meeting or uh, junior church, however you frame it up, you can head that direction. And uh, I know that uh, my wife will be having children's meetings here at the evening in the meetings. And so mom and dad, feel free to bring your kids because the younger ones will be out of the service with her. And as Pastor Ingram said last night, I appreciate him mentioning that. She's not babysitting. She will be teaching them and giving them gospel, uh, 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 different presentations, as well as some other truth. I encourage you in their Christian life. So I uh, hope you'll be a part of that. And uh, I know I'm prejudiced, but man, she does a great job. She really does. I tell her uh, sometimes she's not always able to travel with me. Most of the time he is, not probably 90%. But sometimes if she's not able, I said, you know, if you don't go with me, they're not going to ask me back. And uh, the truth is, if I ever get a return meeting, it's more for her than for me. But anyway, so um, I'm not going to ask Pastor Ingram if that's truth. Uh, I'm just going to assume it is. Okay, but anyway. So, uh, but anyway, it's great to be back and uh, see familiar faces. And I know over the years we've had uh, uh, different opportunity to be here. I almost feel like now I'm coming home to a home church. Uh, so it's just a, a blessing to be here and uh, preach to you. And one thing I love about Canaan Baptist Church is every time I come, I know the place is going to be full of sinners. And so... Um, <laughs> It's really great. So it's, it's, hard to pre- it's hard to preach to perfect people. So I, I just am thrilled to be here. Uh, I'm just teasing with you. I hope you understand that, but kind of. But anyway, and uh, all of us are sinners, but hallelujah for the grace of God. And that's why we're here, because uh, we can learn truth that can help us in our Christian life. And I'm uh, already excited about just the uh, receptivity to the truth that has been presented thus far. That's been a blessing to me. I hope will be continue to be a blessing to you. And we'll, of course, be meeting every night. And I know some of you have a challenge. I, I get the commute thing. I grew up in Chicago, and uh, that was uh, a tough commute for a lot of people. But I watch God's people be faithful to meetings like this. And, and uh, you know, the amazing thing about that, and I could, uh, that church uh, in, in its heyday uh, ran about 1,000 people. And, and I remember revival meetings where the auditorium was packed, five, 600 people, and people commuting out from Chicago. And you know the amazing thing about that? As many of those kids are still serving the Lord and love the Lord. And uh, I, I think many of it was the faithfulness of mom and dad, getting them under the sound of the word of God every time they could. And uh, certainly it's a blessing uh, to, to see that. I've obviously known all turn out for God, but many of them did, many of them. Uh, across the, the world serving the Lord, some of them as laymen and, and uh, deacons and things in local churches. And so it, it is an important meeting. In other words, you do what God, uh, God knows uh, you, you need to do. And if you uh, at all, unless providentially hindered, can be here. And it has nothing to do with me. I hope you understand that. It's not myself just trying to fill the church. I believe that um, when God sets up a meeting through the pastor, that he's got a reason. It's a divine appointment. And uh, I, I remember, I'm a preacher's kid. I'll, I'll be honest with you. So uh, I was, um, uh, many times I remember my dad coming home from a revival meeting, and maybe he shouldn't have said it in my presence, but he did. He said, oh, man, I wish so-and-so was there tonight. That was exactly what they needed. And as a pastor, a shepherd, they get that. They, 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 they know the needs of the sheep. And I just remember that sticking in my mind. Uh, uh, about that particular thing. And it's kind of like this. The, the meeting you miss is probably the one you'll need or maybe someone in your household will need. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to grandstand. I'm not trying to overstate it. I just believe God wants to do something this week. And I want you to be a part of it and see what God might do. Now, let me introduce the message this way. I know where I am. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, or outside of Atlanta, Georgia. I'm in what we might call the South. The South. 
Now, my dad was a Southerner. He was raised in Miami, Florida. That was back when Miami was the South. Now it's the North. But anyway, <laughs> culturally, I'm speaking. Uh, but anyway, and uh, he grew up in the South, and his uh, mother was uh, from Alabama. Now, that's the South. That's the deep South, okay? And she was a cotton, she, a cotton picker, okay? She'd go out in those cotton fields and pick that cotton. And so uh, I have a lot of Southern roots. In fact, when my dad married my mother, who happened to be a Northerner, uh, he went to uh, take my mother to his grandmother, uh, who was, of course, from Alabama. And uh, here's what he got. Oh, you married a Yankee. Okay, but anyway, so I get this Southern Northern stuff, okay? Kind of got caught in the middle of that. Uh, my parents had a mixed marriage, okay? A Southerner and a Northerner. But, uh, uh, but anyway, so, um, but I've, over the years, I was raised in the North. Don't blame me. It's my dad's fault. But anyway, if I had to choose it, I would have chosen the South. Please understand that. I've traveled enough to know, man, I mean, the South, I mean, number one, the Northerners don't know how to cook. You know, Southerners get this thing. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, I, uh, all about that. And boy, I'm telling you, the best restaurants, fast food are in the South. If you go up North, no Zaxby's, none of that stuff. No chicken fingers, no cookout, none of that stuff. You just get boring stuff like McDonald's. Okay, but anyway. Anyway, and so um, uh, I get the South a little bit because I've traveled a little bit, and I, I know something about Southern culture. Southern culture has what we might call a Christianity to it. Do you know that? We were at Chick-fil-A yesterday, Chick-fil-A, sitting down, and right there at a table, it says Chick-fil-A, and it has Colossians 3.23. You're not going to see that in the North. Not even in a Chick-fil-A will you see it up there. They got brains, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, down south, there it is, yeah. Colossians 3, I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, you live in a southern culture. I don't know if it's this true post-COVID. You guys ever heard of COVID? I don't know if you did. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I remember uh, pre-COVID at least, a few years ago, you go, you go on Sunday afternoon, right after church, you go running down the Golden Corral, and everybody's in church dress. For about two hours, they come in and out, you know. You can always tell which services go longer than others, okay? But anyway, about two hours, people are cycling through that. And uh, wow, some of them are dressed to kill. You know what I'm talking about? They are dressed in church dress. That's Southern culture. Northerners don't understand that. If you went to a Northern restaurant after church, you, nobody would be in church clothes. <laughs> You'd be the only ones. It's, 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 it's a different culture down here. And, and so much so that pretty much like everybody knows John 3.16, and, uh, you know, even a guy, uh, oh, I can't even remember that race car driver that died, and they put his number three with a halo on it. Can't even remember his name now. What was his name? Dale Earnhardt. Dale Earnhardt. Okay, now I'm probably going to offend somebody, and I'm not trying to do it on purpose, okay? Uh, but um, I don't know if they should put a halo on his number. You know, from, I don't know. I, maybe he was saved, but he sure didn't live like it. Yeah, see, see that's Southern culture, though. Now, I'm all for, you know, uh, gospel orientation, but it, did you know that it wasn't always that way? The number one religion in South Carolina at the Revolutionary War, you know what it was? The Anglican Church. <laughs> well, that's not true now. The number one denomination in the state of South Carolina is by far the Baptists, <laughs> independent and then denominational Baptists. They're all over the state of South Carolina as they are all over Georgia. You, you understand that revival is what changed that. Revival swept through North Carolina, South Carolina, into Georgia. And I'm telling you, the remnants of that revival are seen even here a hundred years later with the Christian culture. And everyone in this room who's lived in the South knows what I'm talking about. Even if you're not a Christian, if you're not saved, you know what I'm talking about. Now, here's the danger with cultural Christianity. If all you've got is cultural Christianity, you're in huge trouble. You need personal Christianity. 
See, it's not just an assent to doctrine or an assent, oh, I believe in Jesus, or I believe in John 3, 16. It is a, it is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what I'd like us to do this morning is we're going to start with having a revival meeting. But if you're going to have a revival meeting, please understand, you can't be revived until you've been vived. So let's just start at the very beginning and understand the gospel because if all you've got is an understanding of Christian doctrine or a basic understanding and say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being born again. Born of the Spirit. And so I want us to go, if you could please, to Romans chapter number 6, verse number 23, another one of those very familiar verses. And I'd like us just to consider this important matter of whether or not your Christianity is culture or whether it is personal. This passage of Scripture is going to help us, and so we'll walk through this passage of Scripture. And, and, and you might say, well, preacher, I, I, there was a day I walked an aisle, and there was a day I, I prayed a prayer, and I filled out a card, and two weeks later I'm baptized. So uh, am I not a Christian? Can I say this something? The aisle doesn't save you. The prayer doesn't save you. The card doesn't save you. Certainly the baptismal waters doesn't save you. Jesus does. Now, when you walked that aisle and prayed that prayer and filled out the card, you believed in Jesus, you're saved. But it wasn't the aisle, the prayer, or the card that saved you. It was dependence on Jesus that did. Jesus saved you, see. See, cultural Christianity gets that wrong sometimes. How many people walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, and had no dependence on Jesus? They were going through the motions. It was their religious ritual, so to speak. That's not what saves your friend. And uh, so let's just spend a moment and let's just review what the gospel is. So I've entitled a message. It's kind of a, a kind of a little more of a blunt title, but are you ready to die? Are you ready to die? It's like this, friends. None of us in this room want to die, but there's coming a day outside of the rapture of the church. Every single one of us is going to meet that day. And I'm going to ask you a question. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet God? Because cultural Christianity won't do much for you that day. Jesus will. A set of doctrines, my friend, is not going to do it. It's Jesus Christ and the fact that you have believed that set of doctrines and depended upon the, the person of them. So let's go to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It was in the spring of 1996. Our evangelistic team was in a small Christian school in the state of um, Connecticut. Remember, it was a very small Christian school, so we have three rally nights, and of course we go out in the community and we invite uh, uh, area teenagers who are not, do not know the Lord. We invite them to come to our rally nights, and we have big competitions, and some of you have seen the war, Cola Clash, so you know what I'm talking about. And it was the very first night, and, and a Christian school is probably, I don't know, 25, 30, I don't remember. It wasn't very big. And so not many of them were, I mean, they all came, but they were the small part of the crowd. But that first night, I remember about 125 teenagers teenagers showed up. Most of them came walking over from a rough section of town. And, and I remember that night when I got up to preach the gospel, I thought to myself, I wonder how this is going to go. And I remember I started to preach the gospel. And all I can tell you this is the Holy Spirit of God came down in that crowd and he quieted that crowd. You could have heard a pin drop. I remember going through the gospel. I'm thinking, wow, wow, somebody's been praying. I remember I came to the very end. Heads were bowed, eyes were closed. I said, if you're a hellbound sinner concerned about your soul, raise your hand. I mean, a lot of kids raise their hand, way more than I thought would. Then I said, okay, if you're sick of your sin, want Jesus to wash it away, you want to get saved? I said, you head to the back. Wow, most of them guys, but a large percentage of the crowd headed to the back. 
I remember walking into the room where the young men were and I took a quick assessment. I realized we had not prepared for that kind of response. I quickly left the room, went out to our vehicle, got some, uh, some things I needed and, and I was making my way back through the hallway and the meeting had been dismissed so now it was crowded and I need to get back to that room quickly. And I'm making my way through the crowded hallway when all of a sudden a young man stopped me, 17 years old, his name was Jeff. He said, hey preacher, he said, what you got said tonight got through to me. I remember the very first thing I thought I said. I said, are you saved? He said, no, I'm not. I said, you're going to be back tomorrow night? He said, yeah, I'm going to be back tomorrow night. I said, okay, man, I'll be praying for you. That's all the time I had to talk to him. Found out his name was Jeff. I said, Jeff, I'll be praying for you. I remember I had to head back to the room. Literally young people were waiting for someone to open a Bible and show them how to be saved. Remember the next night, Jeff showed up and so did about 125 kids. And that night I got up to preach and it was a little different than the first night. It was one of the mysteries of spiritual warfare. It was much more of a battle. But although there was distractions going on, every time I looked at Jeff, except for once, every time he was plugged in and listening. That night he did not respond either. It was the final night of Friday night and Jeff showed up about 30 minutes early. And he walked up to me and said, hey preacher, he said, when I was 12 years old, I became an atheist. He said, I have been an atheist all the way up until this week. He says, no, man, hey. He said, I don't know. I said, Jeff, got a question for you. God doing something in here? God working on you? I'll never forget his answer. He said, yes, he is. I'm thinking to myself, he's not an atheist anymore. God's working on him. I said, Jeff, let me urge you tonight when the invitation's given, I beg you to respond. I didn't feel that right there. I pulled the net at that time. Remember that night we were preaching outside in our campfire service and Jeff was seated up on the top of a row of a small group, uh, small aluminum bleachers. I gave the invitation, you want to get saved, trust Jesus, wash your sins away, just come off the bleachers and head down to the building. And Jeff swung his legs along the back side of the bleachers and wasn't too far, dropped down about three feet and walked into the, the, the church and the pastor of the church led Jeff to Jesus Christ. And Jeff the atheist became Jeff the believer in Jesus Christ. Man, I, I wish, this was back before cell phones, and I know many of you Gen Zers are freaking out with that comment, but uh, back uh, before cell phones, I, I wish I'd have taken a, a picture of Jeff because he was smiling from one ear to the other. He was so pumped. He said, preacher, he said, I'm going to be here on Sunday morning. I fully expected him to keep his promise. But on Sunday morning, I'm going to tell you, Jeff wasn't in church. I'm going to tell you why. Because he was in heaven. Yeah, about 24 hours after Jeff the atheist became Jeff the believer in Jesus Christ, he was walking across the Berlin Turnpike near his home, hit by a car. They rushed him to the hospital, but he didn't make it. He was DOA, dead on arrival. And I realized, my friend, when I heard the news, I was stunned. But there's one thing I was thrilled about. Jeff was in heaven. And I'm going to tell you why. Because he got ready to die. I'm telling you, friend, are you ready? You say, well, preacher, I got to clean up my act. That's not how you get ready. I got to start going to church. No, that's not how you get ready. I'm not saying church is bad. That doesn't get you to heaven. Oh, preacher, I got to get baptized. No, that won't get you to heaven. But I'll tell you what will. Jesus will. So I want you to see three things tonight, or this morning, I should say, that uh, I want us to just to think about that it will help you get ready to die. Number one, I want you to see the sin of the sinner. The Bible says the wages of Sin is death. Now, sin's an interesting thing because we live in a culture that um, has an opinion about what they think sin is. The Bible says, woe unto him that calls evil good and good evil. When I was growing up, I never thought I'd see the day where people call something that God calls an abomination and they call it good. And something God calls good, they call it evil. 
We live in a culture that's got us upside down. And may I tell you, and I don't want you to miss this, what determines whether something's good or evil has nothing to do with what man thinks. Our government cannot legislate what's good and evil. God already has. And so it doesn't matter what I think sin is. It doesn't really matter what you think sin is, but it does matter what God says sin is. There's a lot of things we could talk about. You say, well, preacher, what is sin? The Bible tells us. 1 John 3, 4, sin is transgression of the law. You break the law of God, that's called sin. Now, you've heard of the Ten Commandments, so let's just start at the real basic Ten Commandments, let's just take five of them real quickly to give you an example of the kind of things that God is telling us is sin. How about commandment number three? Ever broken this one? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that they take his name in vain. You know what's interesting about that verse? Of all the Ten Commandments, there's only one that says you break it, you are not guiltless. Now, if you take that, that's a double negative, which means you're guilty. Of all the Ten Commandments, God is simply, I think, saying this one is like a red flag. If you're going to break one of the Ten Commandments, man, don't break this one. You say, what's that one? Taking God's name in vain. It's evidently a big deal to God. And you know what our culture does? We now text OMG. We all know what that stands for. Oh my G-O-D. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just telling you, as far as God's concerned, you're guilty. You are guilty before God. You have taken His reverent name and you have used it as a euphemism or a curse word. You get angry, you say, geez, or Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You have taken God's name and you've used it in, in a vain fashion. And God says it's called sin. How about commandment number five? Honor thy father and thy mother. I want to ask you a question. When you were in your parents' home, did you treat them like dirt or treat them with respect? Yell back at them? Did you hassle them? That's called sin. Did you disobey them? Did you lie to their face? Did you sneak behind their back? I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just telling you, you have dishonored your parents. It's called sin. And may I say this carefully? Your problem is not primarily with mom and dad. Your problem is due north in the kingdom of heaven with God himself. Amen. You say, well, my parents did this, this, and this. And I recognize no parents are perfect, but I will tell you this. Disrespect is never the answer. Amen. How about commandment number seven? Thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm telling you, friends, we live in a wicked generation. We're just, we overlook the issue of adultery. And I'm just telling you, God, Jesus made it very clear the extent of what God meant when he said, thou shalt not commit adultery in Matthew chapter 5. He said, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But he said, but I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. God's not just concerned about our actions. He's concerned, don't miss this, about our thoughts. Every man in this room, look at pornography. At that moment, you have sinned. You've broken the law of God. You've adulterated the purity of a future or a present marriage. Of your present marriage. It's called sin. You obviously cheat on your wife. I'm probably talking to adulterers in this room. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just telling you, you've got a huge problem with God. And I'm saying God calls it sin. We're living in a culture where our politicians do it, our entertainers do it, our world does it, and the world says, look, just looks over and says, no big deal. I just hate to tell you this, but I'm telling you on Judgment Day, God's not overlooking it. God says, don't commit adultery. Be faithful to your wife. You stick with your vows to that woman or to that man. You cheat on them, it's called sin. You cheat on them in your mind, it's called sin. How about commandment number eight? It says, thou shalt not steal. You know, friends, uh, talk a lot about this, but 
It could be taking a tool home from work. That's not yours. Instead of bringing it back, you keep it on purpose. Yeah, it could be something small. This point is, theft is not the issue. You know, sometimes they call it petty theft, but God doesn't look at it that way. All theft is wrong. Uh, Not giving your employer full day's work is wrong. Corner cutting is wrong. It's all sin. Stealing, taking something that's not yours, it's all sin. Okay, thou shalt not steal. How about thou shalt not bear false witness? You know what that is? Calling the work sick when you're not. That's bearing false witness. It's lying to your spouse to cover up something you're doing behind your back. For you children, it's lying to your parents to cover up what you're doing behind their back. Yeah, it's bearing false witness. You know what bearing false witness is? Deleting the search history on your computer so your spouse doesn't find the fact you've been looking at pornography. Yeah, you're bearing false witness. Yeah, see, there's so many ways it's called sin. Now, we can continue on, but all I want us to understand is the Bible is saying the wages of sin, that uh, we saw the sin of the sinner. But secondly, I want you to see the sentence of the sinner. So you say, well, preacher, what's the consequence of sin? The wages of sin is death. Well, you say, preacher, sure, you're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. What's the big deal? I mean, yeah. Well, the wages of sin is physical death. There's no doubt about it. The Bible says in Ezekiel 18 and verse number four, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. James chapter number one, lust when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin. Sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Every time you drive by a graveyard, God's trying to preach a silent sermon. Every time you drive by a funeral home, God's trying to preach your silent sermon. He says, one day because you sin, you one day will die. And no doubt about it, sin will put us six feet into the ground, but that's nothing compared to this. The greatest tragedy of sin is not that it will put you six feet into the ground. The greatest tragedy of sin is it puts people in hell. Revelation 21.8, listen to this verse, right at the end of the Word of God. Here's what God says, all liars... Wow, that sounds pretty conclusive. You ever lied? You might want to listen. He says, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Did you hear what he said? He talked about a second death. Nobody wants to die, but can you imagine dying forever? You know, sometimes people say, hey, we're going to die, go to hell and party. Oh, oh, no, no, you don't. Nobody parties in hell. There's only one thing people do in hell is they die forever. Nobody wants to die, but can you imagine doing it for eternity? You know, it's like this, friend, if you die and go to heaven, I got really good news for you. You will live forever. But if you die and go to hell, you will die forever. Dying, but never dying. Eternal death. So understand the Word of God is very clear on this issue. And and you might even be out here and say, well, preacher, don't try to scare me with hell. I don't believe in hell. Well, you got a huge problem. And it is really huge. Because if there ever was a hellfire and brimstone preacher in the Word of God, you know what his name was? Jesus Christ. Jesus preached more on hell than any other preacher in the entire Word of God. And number two, he preached more on hell than he did on heaven. Seven times Jesus warned men, living men, that hell is a place of weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Now, of all the human beings that have walked planet Earth, there is only one while he walked this planet who could look into the pit of the abyss and see the screaming, the weeping, and the wailing, and the gnashing of teeth. But Jesus could because of his deity. Understand, friends, that uh, he warned men, living men, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. You know, sometimes when I think about that, I think, wow, that's a bad picture. I mean, the fire is bad enough, but that's a bad picture. (laughs) Weeping, wailing. I remember years ago, I walked into a Christian school on a Monday afternoon, and 
A little five-year-old girl has stuck her fingers in the hinge of a wooden door. The door had been slammed. It took the tip of her tallest finger and severed it right off her hand. There's a trail of blood to the restroom. I could see the trail of blood. And through the paper-thin walls, I could hear that little five-year-old girl looking in her mangled hands, screaming. That night as I preached to the young people, I thought, man, that's nothing compared to hell. But I could not get those girls, that girl's screams out of my mind. I thought, that's nothing compared to hell. Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. You know, when I think of gnashing of teeth, uh, it's really something we're familiar with, but we just don't think of it in this realm because most of us have not reached this high level of pain. But it, it, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Get up in the middle of the night, maybe get up to use the restroom, and you forget about the stupid coffee table. You ever done that? Hit your shin? What do you do? Because it hurts. Civil War, I'm told, they often had to do battlefield operations to save soldiers' life without painkiller. It's almost unthinkable in our modern world. Literally with saws, cutting limbs off. You know what they would do? They'd poke a bullet or a rag in the man's mouth. Have you ever heard the phrase, bite the bullet? That's where it came from. You say, why would they do that? Because the man would have destroyed his teeth with gnashing of teeth if the bullet or the rag was not there. And Jesus said seven times, you die and go to hell, that's what will happen. Gnashing of teeth. Say, preacher, why do you think Jesus said that? Because he doesn't want you to go there. Amen. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Can I say this carefully? Jesus didn't come here to send people to hell. He came here to keep people out of hell. But nonetheless, friends, understand it's an awful place. I remember several years ago, there were two young ladies in a small vehicle uh, I think it was a Vega, and only the older people are going to know what that is, but it was a small car, and it was driving down the road out in the country in rural Illinois. Coming from the opposite direction was a big, huge grain truck. I don't know how, but there was head-on collision. Impact drove the dashboard on the two young ladies who were teenagers onto their laps and kind of knocked them to a semi-conscious state, and they began to scream, get us out, get us out. The driver of the grain truck got out and tried to pull the girls out, but he couldn't get them out. Their legs were pinned into the dashboard. And the farmer nearby heard impact, called 911. He too came out, tried to pull the... They couldn't get them out. Their legs were pinned to the dashboard. Finally, the men had to wait for the emergency units. They knew they could do more. They moved away from the vehicle just in case. And sure enough, the car exploded into flames. When they did, it, the screams and the cries intensified until finally everything was quiet. Now, you please understand... They witnessed a terrible tragedy. I'll be honest with you, I would never want to watch somebody burn alive. Never. But the pastor of the church where those two young ladies attended, who was also an EMT in the area, told me later, he said, Brother Van Gelder, not many people know this. Because I'm an EMT, I happen to know that both of those men arrived on the accident, perfectly sane men. But he said, I happen to know they all had, both of them had serious mental problems the following year. Even having to go in mental institutions to receive help. My friend, my friend, can I say something? They did not see hell. Hell's worse. But what they did see literally messed with their minds. I'm convinced this morning, convinced. If God would let us do this, and I'm glad he doesn't. But if he let us open up the lid of hell and look in, some of us, my friend, would never be the same. I'm just telling you, don't play games with God. Jesus warned us because he loved us. Oh, I want you to understand, number two, the sentence of sin. The wages of sin is death. And it's talking not just about the first death, physical death. It's talking about the second death, which brings us to number three. We saw, first of all, 
The sin of the sinner. Number two, we saw the sentence of the sinner. But oh, number three, ah, this is why I'm preaching the message, the salvation of the sinner. Nobody in this room has to go to hell. Wouldn't it be tragic if somebody did? The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but one of the greatest conjunctions in the whole word of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Isn't that interesting that God contrasts a wage with a gift? We all know the difference. We know what a wage is. A wage, friends, is when somebody earns it. Yeah, we get a rage. For you teenagers out here, let's imagine your next door neighbor came over and said to you, hey, you know, mow my lawn, I'll give you 50 bucks. Well, you get all excited, go out there, that, here's a way to get some money. And, and so you're going to maybe take you two, three hours. You get out there, you mow it up, trim it up real nice, walk up to his door and said, I finished the lawn. Kind of inferring $50. You know how that goes. He looks at you. Oh, by the way, I was just joking about that 50 bucks. You'd be ticked, wouldn't you? I earned that money. That's my money. It's my wage. Oh, we get earning. May I say this? You tell a dirty joke. Yeah, yeah, you're earning hell. Yeah, you laugh at the dirty joke, you're earning hell. It's the wages. When you and I sin, friends, or look at filth, or, or uh, we go out and, and get involved in sin, uh, we, uh, what, we're, what we're doing is we're earning sin. But, you know, God contrasts that with a gift. You can't earn a gift. You can't work for a gift. Can't, can't even buy a gift. The only way, it, it then it ceases to be a gift. How do you get a gift? You take it because somebody else paid for it and they're giving it to you. And the Bible says the gift of God. Now, what kind of gift does God want to give us is eternal life. Oh, you say, preacher, I don't want that gift. I don't want to go to hell. How do I get the gift of God, eternal life? Boy, I really want that gift. I mean, if he's going to give it to me and I, I don't have to earn it because I couldn't, uh, how do I get the gift of God? And they, well, keep reading. It says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, you say, preacher, how do you do that? Okay, let me take a couple of steps back and use a verse for time's sake. Don't turn, but 1 John 2 and verse 2 says, and he, talking about Jesus, is our propitiation. That's a big word, isn't it? It's a great word, so we're going to talk about it in a moment. Stick it in your back pocket. We're coming to it. It says, and he, Jesus, is our propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Wow. What in the world is propitiation? Because it's for my sin. It's for the sins of the whole world. What is propitiation? Oh, propitiation is this. It's the fact that Jesus has taken your place. He's the substitute. And in your place, don't miss this, he has satisfied the wrath of God. Amen. Can I say something that's going to be hard for you to hear? God is angry with the wicked every day. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Because I just quoted scripture. God's angry with the wicked every day. You tell a dirty joke. You just treasured up the wrath of God. In fact, Romans 2 and verse 5 puts it this way. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, or unrepentant heart, treasure us up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Every time we sin, we treasure up the wrath of God. Lie a little bit over here, white lie here, treat our spouse like dirt, maybe go out and look at filth or lie here. We treasure up more wrath. The only problem is one day we're going to die and at judgment day that wrath will be poured out. And will evidently be that which determines the measure of judgment someone re receives in hell. Now, most people don't think about this, but did you know there's degrees of judgment in hell? Not everybody tonight or this morning is suffering the same measure of judgment in hell as others. Say, so how do you know that? Well, Jesus said to the Pharisees, ye shall receive greater damnation. That's comparative. He said to some cities, it's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for you than it is for Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Well, that's comparative, more tolerable. In Revelation 20, at the great white throne, he says, you're going to be judged according to your works. Talking about those that go to hell. So evidently their sin is going to be part of what will determine the measure of judgment one receives in hell. So we understand. So see, what, what does it have to do with this preacher? Oh, a lot. God's wrath is being, is being treasured up. And here's what the Bible says. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. So 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was nailed to a cross, something happened. And here's what happened. Don't miss this. Isaiah 53. The Lord that's God in heaven laid on him, that's Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. My friend, that day God took your sin, and he took my sin, and he laid it on Jesus Christ. Then God took his wrath toward your sin of mine, and he poured out his wrath on your sin of mine. But I wasn't there, and you weren't there, but Jesus was. And the Bible says in 1 Peter, he suffered. For our sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And that day, my friends, you have to understand, Jesus became the propitiation, the one who in your place satisfied the wrath of God. And he is the only one in the universe who can keep you out of hell. He's the only one. Because he paid the awful price. I don't understand it all, but I do see what it says. He's the propitiation for our sin, for your sins, and for the sins of the whole world. The only place anybody can get saved is through Jesus Christ. He paid the awful price. Maybe this illustration will help. Many years ago during the Civil War in the state of Missouri, I can't remember which side was which, but one of the sides had some uh, what they call bushwhackers. And bushwhackers were what we would call today modern-day guerrillas. Guerrillas. They're people who are fighting a war, but they're not in uniform. And the other side captured them and put them on trial, military trial, found them guilty of espionage, and they were sentenced to die by the firing squad. Each man was... Uh, given a shovel, commanded to dig his own grave. Ten graves were carved out of the parched earth that day, and each man was put in, at the foot of his grave, feet tied, hands tied, and blindfolded. Ten riflemen were chosen, and at open range, they were to fire one bullet. Of course, that's all they had at that time. Uh, you know, one at a time, they fire the bullet in the forehead of the traitor, and their bodies would fall, fall backward into the grave, and they'd push the dirt over the, the bodies and move on. All ten men were lined up, and the commanding officer, I imagine, is a cold, steel-nerved, soldier-like man, probably done this many times. He's pacing back and forth. Okay, men, raise your rifles. Ten rifles went up, aimed at ten condemned men. He said, okay, men, raise your rifles. Ready, aim. Before he could utter the word fire, into the range of fire ran a teenage boy, wildly waving his arms. History remembers his name. His name was Willie, Willie Lear. And just a teenager, I think 16 years old. Wildly waving his arms and saying, stop, stop everything. The commanding officer immediately turned to the men. Men, put your rifles down. He rebuked the boy. But Willie would not give up. He come running up to the commanding officer. He said, sir. He says, you see that man over there? He points to one of the ten condemned men. He says, that man has a wife. He has kids. You can't let him die. The commanding officer looked and said, son, he's committed a crime. He's going to die. The teenage boy says, sir, I'm a Christian. If I die, I'm going to heaven. He said, I don't have no kin. He said, would you let me die in that man's place? The story becomes a little vague here. We're not sure if he goes back and checks with commanding officers or reads law books, but he does come back with an answer. It comes up to 16-year-old Willie Lear, and he says, son, according to the laws of the land, I can't stop you. If you're willing to take his place and he is willing to let you, my orders are for 10 men to die. You can imagine that day as that little, that 16-year-old boy looked up and said, I'll do it. And went over to that man, took the rope off that man's hands, put it on Willie's hands. Took the rope off that man's feet, put him on Willie's feet. Took the blindfold off, put him on Willie's eyes. Now there were nine men and one teenage boy before the firing squad. Nine men paying the price for their sin and one who was the substitute to satisfy the wrath of the sentence. 
You can imagine that day. Uh, that commanding officer probably wanted to hesitate, wait, hoping something would happen, but finally he could wait no longer. Okay, men, raise your rifles. Ten rifles, one up aimed at nine men, one teenage boy. Okay, men, raise your rifles. Ready, aim, fire. Ten shots rang out that day. Nine men, one teenage boy, fell backwards into their graves, dead. The soldiers came and hurriedly pushed the dirt over the dead bodies, and the story is told that that man, whose life had been spared, came back that night with bare hands. He clawed the loose dirt, came down to the lifeless body of that teenage boy. He took him elsewhere, buried him, put a tombstone there. And the story is told that time and again, he would come often with tears streaming down his face to pay homage to the teenage boy who was his substitute that satisfied the wrath of the sentence. One day, my friend, Jesus Christ in eternity saw you and me on the firing squad of God's justice. He knew as sinners we were condemned to hell. He knew the moment we died, we'd drop into hell. And Jesus Christ came down and said, I'll take his place. But the only question, friend, is, will you trust him to do it? He's not going to force it on you. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe this verse will have new meaning because many of you know this verse. Hopefully you'll never see it the same. John 3, 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Tonight, if you'll believe uh, this morning, believe on Jesus. Depend on him like a drowning man trusts a lifeguard. God says you'll have everlasting life just by trusting him for it. But he that believeth not shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. See that verse, friends? If you don't trust Jesus to be your propitiation, God's wrath is still over you. All you got to do is die and it's poured out. But don't blame God. You can stiff-arm Jesus Christ. God didn't make you a robot. But if you stiff-arm him, friends, you will face the judgment of God without a propitiation. Hallelujah, friends. I'm trusting Jesus to be my propitiation. I know I'm a sinner better than anybody in this room, and you know you're a sinner better than anybody in this room, but hallelujah, Jesus Christ stood in my place and suffered the wrath of God that I ought to have taken. And I'm trusting him to be the propitiation for my sins. Are you? Oh, I'm telling you, friends, perhaps this illustration will kind of wrap it up on you're ready to die. You're not ready to die until Jesus has become your propitiation. I'm not asking if you grew up in a Christian home. I'm not asking, like I said earlier, if you've walked an aisle, prayed a prayer. I'm not asking you if you go to church somewhere. I'm asking you, has there ever been a day as a hell-bound sinner, you trusted Jesus to wash your filth away and give you eternal life? Because that nobody comes to the cross proud. There's only one way to the cross, and friends, that's bowing. And humility and need, saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner going to hell. Jesus, save me. And you know what? He will. He will. I remember several years ago, he, I was in Cornville, Arizona. A young pastor was there. I was young at the time, but the pastor was younger. I remember one day he said, Brother Van Gelder, and I feel led of the Lord to tell you a story. Maybe you can use it. From time to time over the years, I've used this story. He said one night, he said there was a revival meeting, and, and the Southerners particularly understand revival meetings. He said there was a revival meeting in a small country church. The evangelist was preaching that night, and as he was preaching, he looked out in the crowd, and he saw a teenage boy he'd never seen before. Well, as he preached, he got burdened, thought maybe the boy doesn't know how to be saved, and he kind of directed his message toward the gospel, and men are sinners, hell-bound. Jesus loved us, died on the cross, shed his blood. You trust him, he'll save you. Went through the gospel, finished the message, and he gave the invitation, but the boy didn't respond. 
Finally, the preacher felt like he had to close it down. He went to the back door. You know how an old country church is? One way in, pretty much one way out. Preacher sat there at the door as people went by, thanked him for coming that night. And out of the corner of his eye, he saw that teenage boy approaching him. And it was like the Spirit of God quickened his heart and said, speak to that boy. Grabbed his hand, looked down in his eyes. He said, young man, he said, can I ask you a question? He said, are you a Christian? Teenage boy looked up and said, no way, preacher. I'm not a Christian. The preacher looked down, son, wouldn't you like to trust Jesus Christ? No, your sins are washed away and you're a true Christian. Then he looked up and said, no way, preacher. I get too much living to do. With that, he walked out the door. Went down the steps of that old country church and it was all prearranged. Car pulled into the parking lot full of some of his buddies. He jumped in the car, left the parking lot, probably tires squealing, and went down to the edge of town to go to McDonald's. They evidently got out, went in, and it was reported later that this young man ordered a hamburger, french fries, and a large Coke. Perhaps I can see them in my mind's eye coming out of McDonald's holding their, their Coca-Cola glasses and jumping in the car. And unfortunately, as teenagers some do, sometimes do, he lay left town and began to speed along some of the country lanes. It's not flat land like, like a farming community. It was more rolling hills like I'd think of in Pennsylvania or West Virginia or something like that. As they began to kind of going up and down too fast, really, for what they were doing, they crested the hill. And when they did, everybody in the car saw it. They were coming in on a rural railroad crossing. But they saw a huge beam racing through the darkness and they recognized it. as the late night express train. The driver of the car literally had a split-second decision. Either he had to literally stand on those brakes and try to stop the speeding car before the speeding train, or he had to try to beat the train. I don't know. I don't know. Was he on something? I don't know. Did he think it was the only thing he could do? I don't know. Was he in a gambling mood? But I will tell you this. The pedal went down to the metal, and when it did... There was no turning back. I imagine all the laughter in the car stops now. All the making fun of the preacher, making fun of God, it all stops now. Everybody's looking at that beam. Are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? You can imagine that car begun to shake as it reached the top capacities of its speed. Are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? There was a massive explosion. And all four young men died on impact. Including the young man who looked up in the face of a concerned preacher and said, no way, preacher. I got too much living to do. Little did he know his living did not consist of 50 years. It consisted of less than 50 minutes. And I say this as carefully as I know how. I say it as clearly as I know how. He was not ready to die. And there's people in this room that are not ready either. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Could I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Would you just stand to your feet right where you are? Just right where you are, stand to your feet. Just stand right up, right where you are. I've got a very important question here for everybody just to take spiritual inventory just for a short moment. But how many here this morning would say, Preacher, if I died right now, I know I deserve to go to hell, but I know I'm going to heaven, not because of anything I've done. Because one day as a hell-bound sinner, I trusted Jesus to be my propitiation. And He satisfied the wrath I got in my place. And I'm so grateful. He is my propitiation. That's you. Put your hand right up there as a testimony of the almighty grace of God. Thank you very much. You put your hands down. That wasn't for me. That was for you. 
Now, I don't know. There may have been some that could not raise their hand. I appreciate your honesty. You could just put it up there. And, but you, didn't fake, you never fake God out if you raise your hand. But I appreciate your honesty if you didn't raise your hand. And I, I, I don't necessarily know who you are. But I will say this. If you could not raise your hand a moment ago, how many say, Preacher, I want Jesus to be my propitiation. I want him to satisfy the wrath of God in my place. I know I deserve judgment, and we all do. I'm concerned about it. Would you pray for me? I will not embarrass you. I will not point you out, but I will pray for you. My prayer can't get you to heaven, but I'll tell you what I, my prayer can do. I'm going to pray that God will help you understand it. So you'll understand how simple it is to get saved. Heads about and eyes are closed. No one's looking, but you say, Preacher, I believe I need to get saved. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Or maybe you know you're not. And you say, Preacher, I need Jesus. I want, him to, I want to know He's my propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God in my place because He loves me. Yes, I see that. Thank you, sir. Is there anyone else? Just lift your hand high. I'm concerned about it. Would you pray for me, Preacher? I'm not sure if I'd die to go to heaven. I'm concerned about it. Not sure about uh, eternity. Uh, maybe you know you're lost and going to hell. I, maybe you're not sure, but you, either case you're concerned. Would you just lift your hand? Anyone else? Just lift it high. Yes, sir. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Anyone else? I'm concerned about it. Would you pray for me, preacher? Again, I won't embarrass you. I won't point you out. Now, heads about and eyes are closed. I'm going to pray. Now, God, I, you know hearts. I, I can't see hearts. You know everybody in this room. You're dealing with people right now. You're, you're on it. And Lord, there's a battle raging in some hearts. I, I wouldn't necessarily know it because I can't see it, but you know it. I'm praying, God, for that one that raised their hand and any other is Lord that should have but didn't. Would you help them to understand that they can't get saved by what they do? They getting, get saved by trusting what you've already done. You've already paid the price. You want to give them eternal life. But Lord, they've got to trust you. Come humbly and trust you because they're sinners hellbound and need to be saved from hell and sin. So work in their hearts on this matter. Make these matters clear. We ask in your name. Heads about and eyes are closed. I'm going to ask our pastor to come in and conclude as he sees fit.